Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of torture, child abuse, sexual assault, and mass murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Many people think that the best way to escape war is to dwell upon its horrors and to imprint them vividly upon the minds of the younger generation. They flaunt the grisly photographs... The scar of the Holocaust remains so deeply etched into human history, any person could readily speak of its horrors. When such egregious acts of evil occur, historians go to great lengths to rummage through the aftermath. They collect the relics of destitute conditions and merciless killings in the hopes that bearing the harsh truth to the world might prevent the same tragedy from striking twice. The atrocities of Unit 731 were never documented in such a way. Concealed during the second half of the 20th century, the horror all but disappeared beneath the fallout of World War II. To this day, the loud collective amnesia surrounding Dr. Shiro Ishii and the Japanese Army's human experiments leaves more questions than answers. Such repression speaks in part to the denial of those Japanese scientists who participated in the atrocities. But there's another reason why few of the horrors that went on within the walls of the human testing labs have been accounted for. Hardly anyone made it out alive. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our final episode of Shiro Ishii, our World War II research doctor whose work was very informative, horribly unethical, and produced deadly results. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dr. Shiro Ishii, the Surgeon General for Japan's Imperial Army. From 1931 to 1945, he oversaw a biowarfare research empire. He's often referred to as the Yosef Mengele of Japan. Last week, we explored Ishii's early work innovating health practices for the Japanese military and his journey to creating his first human testing facilities. This week, we'll detail what happened in Ishii's notorious Unit 731, where he neglected every standard of medical ethics to employ weapons for mass murder. 
We'll also track his fall from grace and the American cover-up that kept his evils unaddressed for decades. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the spring of 1933, a sense of imminent catastrophe lingered over Manchuria, a region of northeastern China which Japan had just renamed Manchu Guo. Under Japan's puppet government, the Guangdong army had unfettered access to the area's resources and exploited them with great fervor, imperiling civilians with militaristic force. Now, one thing was clear. The League of Nations wouldn't be able to save them. In the preceding months, the intergovernmental organization had conducted an audit of Japan's backhanded takeover and demanded they relinquish control. In response, Japan withdrew from the League of Nations with plans to further conquer their Asian neighbors. Advanced by ultra-nationalist military interests, which had essentially replaced Japanese law, emerging weapons research received excessive funding. The star of that show quickly made himself known, Dr. Shiro Ishii. The 40-year-old microbiologist had secured a prestigious position as a professor of immunology at the Tokyo Army Medical College and the rank of surgeon major in the military expansion effort. He used these to his advantage, befriending high-ranking officers, officials, and physicians who helped him open a research facility in Manchuria shortly after its occupation. If Ishii was anything, it was persuasive. Not only had he been able to actualize his goal to test on human prisoners, but he'd also yielded funding for a second, more remote center in the Manchurian town of Beiyinhe. To prove its value, Ishii invited Lieutenant General Saburo Endo to see his work firsthand. It may have felt like a full-circle moment for Ishii. After all, Endo had been an assistant to Japan's chief army delegate at the 1925 Geneva Convention, which banned the use of biological warfare. Writings about this conference inspired Ishii's initial research into bacteriological weapons. Now, Ishii took great pride in explaining his methods to the prestigious man, and Endo took great care to journal his experiences. In one diary entry, 
dated November 16, 1933, Endo wrote a viewing a lab experiment in which physicians gassed, poisoned, and electrocuted two prisoners he deemed bandits. The end of the entry reads, Bandit electrocuted with 5,000 volts. Several jolts not enough. After several minutes of continuous currents, was burned to death. Left at 1.30 p.m. This experiment was excessive, given how little they knew about electrocution at that point in the 20th century. The impact of electrical shock on human beings is determined by several factors, including voltage, which is essentially the force at which electricity passes through a conductor. This flowing electricity, or electrical current, plays a very crucial role here also. The current's entry point, pathway through the body, and duration are critical variables in terms of what kind of damage can result from electric shock. Even 40 to 50 volts can create a deadly electrical current under the right circumstances. Going back to our story, 5,000 volts with repeated and ongoing currents would be devastating, Alistair. Typically, intense electrocution can cause severe skin burns, cardiac arrest, arrhythmias, painful muscle contractions, seizures, sensory motor impairment, and death. Electric currents also cause thermal or heat damage to our internal anatomy, and the most at risk being nerve and vascular tissues. Despite all this, Ishii's subjects were experiencing pain on another level. They were basically being cooked alive, and their organs would have been structurally and functionally destroyed due to the tremendous heat. They may have even experienced a loss of limbs or other body parts due to this wildly intense electrical torture. These studies were incredibly lethal and are excruciating to even think about. The matter-of-fact language in Endo's journal suggests that he saw the human subjects the same way Ishii did, as animals meant to serve Japan's vast and still-growing military-industrial complex. Three weeks after Endo left the facility, he remarked that the 200,000 yen that had gone into Beiyin He may not have been unreasonable. The implications of Ishii's research for biowarfare had not been lost on him. Ishii's students at Tokyo Army Medical College appreciated his innovative experiments even more. They relished in Ishii's boastful recountings of the tests he conducted, and he delighted in telling them. In his mind, it was a way to recruit future physicians to his growing empire. He told students of the diseases his staff regularly injected into prisoners and stressed the importance of tracking illness as it took hold of a body. It didn't take much to entice the young students, who seemingly revered Ishii as a national hero. Never before had any doctor so effectively established a means for testing on human subjects. Because of him, they figured their medical insights would grow tenfold. Ishii's distinguished status was soon threatened, however, during a security breach at the Beiyin He prison in the fall of 1934. One night, a Bei Yin He prisoner named Li stirred in his cell. 
Noticing the oafish guards were drunk on liquor imbibed in honor of the Japanese mid-autumn festival, Lee saw an opportunity to escape. Adrenaline coursed through his veins as he reached through his barred door and hit a guard over the head. Then he unlocked his leg shackles, freed himself, and proceeded to unlock all the other human cages in his block. Sadly, only some were strong enough to join him. In the hour that followed, approximately 30 men made it outside to one of the looming three-meter-high walls that surrounded the jail. A significant obstacle lay before them, but they were lucky. A recent rainstorm had killed the fortress's electrified barbed wire. Lee valiantly hoisted his fellow inmates onto his back, creating a human chain that allowed them to climb over. Meanwhile, inside the facility, drunken security officers yelled in panic, realizing what had happened. They raced to find the subjects that had broken free, then shot aimlessly into the group of men waiting to make it out. Eleven died on the spot, including Lee, who had served as the base of the makeshift ladder. His death, however, was not in vain. Twenty men managed to land on the other side of the wall. Of them, eight were killed or recaptured before they reached the nearby village. The remaining dozen were free, aided by elderly locals who helped them flee the city. Though they're the only known survivors of Ishii's biowarfare empire, they quickly disappeared into oblivion. The trauma they'd endured was unspeakable, and their personal accounts were never directly recorded. But that didn't stifle Ishii's anger at the security breach. He saw the successful escape as a slight to his authority and a threat of exposure. To mitigate the risk of scandal moving forward, Ishii insisted that Beiyin He be shut down. In its place, he planned to expand his network of research facilities, finding new sites in northern Manchuria, southern China, Thailand, Singapore, the Philippines, and New Guinea. Perhaps appreciating Ishii's security concerns, Emperor Hirohito approved the locations in 1936. Military officers were promptly sent to those regions to oversee construction of various units. Meanwhile, Beiyin He was torched and destroyed to ensure its dark purpose remained classified. To the outside world, the new military research bases were homes for exploring anti-epidemic methods. To Shiroishi, they were germ warfare labs that would fully eclipse the feats of discovery at Beiyin He. Both objectives required developments that the rest of the world hadn't yet considered. Around this time, the Japanese hazmat suit, made out of rubberized silk, was created in an effort to give scientists access to contaminated areas while also keeping them safe. Prior to this, medical personnel had far weaker ways to protect themselves against contagious pathogens. 
To manage highly contagious diseases, medical professionals require certain tools to protect themselves. These safety measures are commonly known as PPE, or personal protective equipment. The creation of the hazmat suit, in particular, has been incredibly useful when it comes to present-day medicine, as it's given doctors the ability to study hazardous chemicals and pathogens in far greater detail. These whole body suits are so effective, they're impermeable to harmful substances in the environment, and they allow researchers to work safely while allowing for the closest possible examinations. In the U.S., hazmat suits are ranked as level A, B, C, or D, depending on the amount of protection they provide, with level A offering the best defense. Level A garments come with encapsulated breathing apparatuses, or internal breathing devices, which protect against vapor transmission. They're also equipped with special steel-toed boots, along with an inner and outer pair of chemical-resistant gloves. Some even have two-way embedded radios to help connect someone to a remote monitoring system. On a contemporary note, scientists wear and rely on Class A hazmat suits when studying COVID-19. It's clear that Ishii's anti-epidemic measures, while created in malice, were very clever and ahead of their time. These developments continued as Ishii's broad-reaching facilities began running and prisoners were shipped in. And while these subjects had enormously grim fates ahead of them, they weren't the only ones who suffered as a result of Ishii's growing network of death camps. The local families in each region were often left to find new homes with little warning, losing access to lands they relied on for resources and income. Ishii robbed thousands of their livelihoods as the Guangdong army invaded the regions and proceeded with construction. One unit in particular, however, drew the majority of Ishii's effort. Located in Pingfang, roughly 16 miles southwest of the original Manchurian biowarfare facility, this new site was slated as the crown jewel of Ishii's empire. Publicly, it was named the Epidemic Prevention and Water Supply Unit of the Guangdong Army, but it would eventually become known as Unit 731. Up next, Ishii's new facility sets records for the unethical treatment of prisoners. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hagman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath, from murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. 
Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. After the order destruction of Dr. Shiro Ishii's Beijing Her facility in 1935, Ishii set his sights on Unit 731, based in Pingfang, a remote region of Manchuria. Its designs included dozens of specialized laboratories, a refrigerated room for the study of frostbite, stables for large animals, two prisons, three crematoriums, military barracks, an administrative center, a library, a Shinto temple, restaurants, a bar, and even a school for children. Those last few amenities were intended to serve the military and medical professionals working at the unit. While Chinese prisoners of all ages and genders were locked up in cells like animals, Japanese families enjoyed relative opulence mere buildings away. It was a concentrated representation of the widespread racism and wealth disparity that plagued Japan. And it was only reinforced by elite Japanese doctors and officials, including Shiro Ishii, who lied to Manchurians. He claimed the 150-building site was to be a lumber mill. The sentiment was taken a step further when workers at the facility began referring to their subjects as logs. This verbal disconnect only further detached the scientists from the people they were torturing. The professionals stationed at Unit 731 also seemed to lack concern for the locals whose town they occupied. As Chinese families were forced to evacuate the Manchurian villages that spanned Pingfang, men from various households were employed as construction workers. From the moment they arrived, they were overworked and undercompensated. To further weaken Manchuria's local population, Ishii often paid them in heroin cigarettes. It wasn't hard to get them hooked on the highly addictive drug. Issuing heroin-laced cigarettes was an atrocious tactic, and this poisoning of the Chinese construction workers would have likely impaired their physical and cognitive functioning. It surely made them more accident-prone on the job. In addition to harming organs like the heart, liver, and kidneys, heroin creates chemical changes in the brain that make the drug incredibly addictive. This morphine derivative stimulates the brain's mu opioid receptors, which creates a flood of neurotransmitters that induce euphoria. Because heroin's an opiate, it also stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system, which slows the heart and respiration. For the Chinese laborers in this situation, the severity and onset of addiction would have depended on the heroin concentration in the cigarettes, their overall health, and how often and long they were smoking. 
Under the most extreme circumstances, workers could have become dependent in a month or less. With this kind of drug dependency, they could have been experiencing physical symptoms like constipation, severe itching, sedation, and labored breathing from the associated respiratory depression. They also may have dealt with sleep disturbances, intense mood swings, profuse sweating, and general agitation tied to short bouts of withdrawal. This was such an evil maneuver on Ishii's part because he basically rendered his workers physically and mentally addicted to his employment. Working for him became the only way they could ensure their heroin supply, so they were effectively enslaved. Throughout this corrupt construction phase, however, Ishii's physicians didn't shy away from carrying out lethal experiments. As early as 1936, before many of the Pingfong labs were completed, Ishii directed military personnel to bring in the prisoners. It didn't matter to him that the facility wasn't done. He was ready to start conducting research there. In honor of the new Unit 731, Ishii delivered a chilling speech to his staff. He said, Our God-given mission as doctors is to challenge all varieties of disease-causing microorganisms, to block all roads of intrusion into the human body, to annihilate all foreign matter resident in our bodies, and to devise the most expedient treatment possible. However, the research work upon which we are now to embark is the complete opposite of those principles and may cause us some anguish as doctors. While Ishii seemed to momentarily grasp how difficult it would be for some doctors to test on live humans, his true objective quickly shined through. Ishii ended with an encouragement, beseeching the research base to carry out their experiments in the name of advancement discovery, and powerful military development. What he was really enforcing was mass murder. But the professionals in the audience made no interjection. Challenging the views of admired professionals is difficult for anyone, and for subordinate staff in this environment, it could have cost them their careers or even their lives. It's also likely that these employees were hired in part due to their devotion to Ishii or for their ardent nationalism, which could account for their lack of rebellion. Today, doctors generally aren't afraid to speak up when they disagree with a prescribed treatment plan, and medical hierarchy tends to fall by the wayside when advocating for a patient's well-being. This is in line with the Do No Harm Directive in the Hippocratic Oath, which we regularly reference at the top of each podcast. However, Alistair, despite it being atypical, there are still healthcare practitioners who may feel silenced due to potentially negative career consequences. For example, it could be that medical students or doctors in training feel stifled in provoking discourse because their superiors and attending physicians are responsible for their evaluations. If they create tension or bad blood, it could poorly impact future employment opportunity or potentially eliminate it altogether. For Japanese medical professionals, open disagreement with Ishii would have probably meant more than firing. It would have likely been perceived as a threat to the state's objectives and even treason. With that in mind, Ishii's growing workforce of physicians, lab technicians, and troops started their experiments. 
Meanwhile, 44-year-old Ishii took on the personal initiative of hiring more brilliant minds. From 1936 onward, Ishii spent at least three months each year in Japan researching bioweapons alongside graduate students at Tokyo Army Medical College. He also toured various institutions, further singing the praises of his cutting-edge facilities to students. In earlier years, scholars had been allowed to visit his labs and view films of experiments. But now they were promised hands-on experience. Ishii enticed young minds with the promise of vivisection or live dissection. It's believed that this practice was no secret to the emperor and many of his high office supporters. In fact, thousands in the Japanese Imperial Army were engaging in vivisection across Ishii's facilities because it was known to produce more accurate results than testing on a corpse. Those in the scientific community understood that it allowed them to see the manifestation of disease in a body before it had run its course. Before a vivisection, prisoners were injected with sicknesses like bubonic plague, smallpox, and typhoid. In the weeks that followed, they were routinely wheeled into a viewing room, restrained and dissected while they were still breathing. Notably, anesthetic was optional and, usually, not used because of theories that such substances obscured the accuracy of the findings. Administering any drug may impact overall organ function, especially in sensitive prisoners whose bodies were far more vulnerable due to their compromised health. Because anesthesia slows the biologic functions of the respiratory and cardiovascular systems, it would likely produce visually noticeable effects in the heart and lungs. In other words, the heart would beat slower and with less force, and the lungs would inflate with less expansion and frequency. There also may be observable differences in the gastrointestinal system, as anesthesia slows peristalsis or the rhythmic relaxing and constriction of the intestinal muscles. Today, there are much less invasive and far fewer gruesome ways of observing the impact of disease on living organs. For example, we now have blood and urine tests that inform our understanding of how an illness evolves, along with imaging techniques like MRI, CAT scans, and ultrasonography. There's also functional studies that involve the use of specific equipment for monitoring targeted organs. One example is a spirometer that tests how the lungs are functioning. This is a device that patients breathe into, and with it, doctors can diagnose and track conditions like asthma, COPD, and cystic fibrosis. Even though Ishii didn't have access to any of these technologies that explore the insides of the body, nothing excuses the ghastly, live, and unanesthetized dissection that was taking place. But observation and vivisection weren't the only science conducted on Unit 731's forcibly sickened patients. Oftentimes, various innards were removed during the dissection to examine if humans could still live without vital organs. Other times, bodies were partially dismembered and sewn back together to test how the body responded when certain parts were fused. 
The inconceivable violence inflicted on each prisoner invokes imagery akin to horror films of the 21st century, like Saw or Human Centipede. But these occurrences were in no aspect fiction. And it was more than just able-bodied male prisoners who received such vile treatment. Some prison blocks were dedicated to women and children who were often used to monitor sexually transmitted diseases. The study of syphilis specifically rendered absolute horrors on defenseless victims. Initially, Ishii and his team injected women with the disease, but they resented the fact that their observations weren't real research results. Normally, syphilis is spread through human contact. In the name of accurate data, Ishii forced involuntary sex between non-infected and infected prisoners to track transmission. Anyone who resisted would be shot. Sometimes, the assaulted women would get pregnant. Their baby would be ripped from them at birth, inspected to see if the syphilis had transferred from mother to child. It's highly likely that many of the babies born to syphilis-infected mothers also contracted the disease. Syphilis is an infection caused by the bacteria Treponema pallidum, and it's most commonly spread through sexual contact. The infection can easily be passed from mother to child during pregnancy via the placenta. This transmission to the fetus during development is known as congenital syphilis, and about half of affected babies die from it shortly before or after birth. Syphilis can also infect newborns if they come into direct contact with syphilitic sores or lesions as they pass through the birth canal. Studies indicate that within the first four years of contracting syphilis, pregnant women have about a 70% chance of passing it on to their offspring. This shows how transmissible this disease is, and physicians at Ping Fong likely recognize this quality very early on. This did not stop them from further pursuing the exploration of various venereal diseases. They even developed nicknames for the genitals of women who had been infected. The word demoralizing is inadequate. In addition to the rapes conducted for what Ishii felt was substantiated research, women were also subject to the perverse sexual hungers of Ishii's staff. On one occasion, a worker saw his colleagues sexually assaulting a female prisoner and grew lustful. He unlocked a nearby cell and took a Chinese woman who had been used in a frostbite experiment. She was missing several fingers. Her skin was black as gangrene had run its course. Still, the worker grabbed at her with the intent of raping her. It was only when he saw her infected genitals that he left. It didn't matter to him that she was suffering, only that in assaulting her, he would risk his own health. Without an ounce of guilt weighing on his conscience, Ishii too likely enjoyed his fair share of debauchery. As he had a decade prior, Ishii reportedly frequented brothels and bars and imbibed heavily, then returned to his facilities like only a true mad scientist would. 
There don't appear to be any detailed accounts of his personal dealings with female prisoners, but his laissez-faire attitude to the wrongdoings of his cohorts reinforces the cruel detachment he maintained throughout his biowarfare experiments. The number of victims who died under Dr. Ishii's authority throughout the 1930s remains unknown. But when they were low on prisoners, Ishii had no problem authorizing the kidnapping of unsuspecting Manchurian civilians. Upon any shortage in prisoners, military staff would refer to a list tracking which types of subjects were needed. Once they knew their intended captives, they'd load into dark Dodge vans and patrol civilian regions. Most often, it was unsuspecting Chinese individuals who were snatched off the streets from dark alleyways and dimly lit sidewalks. The pleas and fist pounding from inside the vans was enough for locals to sense the sinister acts taking place in the Japanese military facilities they drove off to. Unfortunately, there was little they could do. Any effort to retaliate would be deemed conspiratorial, and they too would be shipped off to the unthinkable torture camps. Like most mass killings, the act of speaking out holds a higher cost than the guilt of remaining silent. Verbalizing dissent required a willingness to die. As if the terrorized Chinese population didn't have enough to fear, by 1939, Ishii and his team were experimenting with mass-distributed infection. While civilians could run from the black dodges that drove through their towns, suffering would soon become an unavoidable nightmare-turned-reality. Up next, Ishii's lethal experiments come to an end, but not before they lead to devastating consequences. Now, back to the story. Throughout the 1930s, Dr. Shiro Ishii and his research team conducted experiments that explored a wide range of diseases in unthinkable ways. They monitored the transmission and development of sicknesses in vital organs and observed the efficacy of various vaccines in treating and preventing them. For other experiments, they found inspiration in the spread of the bubonic plague and Japanese bee encephalitis. For these, they examined how different animals and elements like water could serve to distribute their lab-kept pathogens when used for war. While they operated in the name of anti-epidemic research, what they were really plotting was the exact opposite. It had been fruitful studying individual prisoners throughout the 30s, but by the final year of the decade, Ishii was ready to prey on entire villages. If anything would give him an accurate understanding of how plague spread on the battlefield, it was launching infectious microbes on unsuspecting civilians. The field tests began in the summer of 1939. Ishii's military troops traveled to No Mon Han in eastern Mongolia to get to the Holston River. 
This body of water served as a tributary of the Holha River, which the Soviet army relied on for hydration. Per Ishii's command, the Japanese troops carried approximately 23 18-liter oil drums filled with typhoid-tainted vegetable gelatin and dumped them into the water. It remains unknown how many Soviet soldiers were harmed by this biowarfare attack, but it's believed few were affected, if any. This is likely because the typhoid bacillus, the pathogen involved here, has a lower infectivity in the running water of a river. Typhoid fever is usually transmitted through fecal contamination of food or water, and infection can result in symptoms like diarrhea, weakness, severe dehydration, and intense stomach pain. Stagnant water is particularly good for bacterial growth due to its lower oxygen levels and its potential to accumulate other contaminants. When these bacterial microbes are in flowing water, like a river, they tend to disperse and attach themselves to surfaces they encounter along the way. Furthermore, if they need to travel a great distance, they become less concentrated in the water as it continues to flow over or through attachable terrain. Ultimately, Ishii's method of execution was poorly thought through, given how far the typhoid would have had to travel to reach Russian soldiers. While the impact on the Soviets was effectively nil, around 40 Japanese men who had emptied the barrels died of typhoid. It was as though Ishii had sent his own people on a suicide mission. There are some theories that Ishii did this intentionally to claim he'd run a field test while obliterating the chance for any witness to say it failed. If so, he took 40 lives to advance his own reputation. But it's impossible to know for sure whether Ishii was a mad mastermind here or he just screwed up. Either way, Ishii was hailed as a hero and received praise from the commanding general of the Guangdong army, recognizing his contribution to the war effort against the Soviets. If Ishii was ashamed of his unsuccessful war tactic, he didn't show it. Instead, he employed alternative tactics. Throughout 1940, 1941, and 1942, as the Japanese worked as an ally to Nazi Germany, Ishii used infected fleas to spread bubonic plague, in addition to his efforts to release cholera, typhoid, and other diseases into local populations. Airplanes dropped the small plague-infected creatures on helpless communities. Then, Dr. Ishii and his team tracked how long it took before catastrophe erupted. Such experiments on civilian populations were not performed anywhere else in the world at this time, for good reason. The effects were notable. In one city and its surrounding villages, a cholera outbreak is thought to have killed tens of thousands of people. Sometimes, amid their panic, the Japanese military paid the affected towns a visit, insisting each person receive a vaccine against the illness that had spread. The injections administered to the desperate communities were not always immunization fluids, but more pathogens 
intended to kill. And experiments with shots and rats weren't enough for Dr. Ishii. He was curious to know if he could isolate a pathogen able to withstand the heat of an explosion. In the early 1940s, Ishii discovered that metal bombshells weren't successful in delivering germs. The force and heat of bombs fully obliterated all pathogens. Bacteria are microscopic and sensitive to temperature. In fact, most bacteria and viruses that are harmful to humans die within minutes of heat exposure exceeding 160 degrees Fahrenheit. The force and heat from a standard bomb would be too much for most, if not all, bacteria to survive. It's no wonder that Ishii's initial attempts to create bacterial explosives were unsuccessful. Ultimately, the plague-causing flea clay bomb idea speaks to his evil ingenuity. Eventually, however, Ishii made a discovery. Clay bombshells filled with fleas could successfully deliver the plague. The fleas' resilient yet tiny bodies are resistant to air drag, while their fall from a high altitude would only result in minimal casualties. Still, thousands of fleas were needed for a single bomb. Procuring them was no small task. As Ishii's experiments grew more exhaustive, he fell out of favor among many in the Guangdong army who felt his facilities had cost more than they'd contributed. Millions of infected fleas did not come cheaply. Still, Ishii further pursued innovations in delivering disease. In 1944, Ishii began exploring bacteria-spreading balloons. Beginning in that November, the Japanese sent 9,300 bombs to the US via balloon under the codename Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night. They killed six American civilians via explosion after crashing in Oregon. Five of them were children. Though tragic, the death toll was minuscule in comparison to the estimated 140,000 and 74,000 that died respectively from bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki the following year. After the two nuclear devastations ended World War II, Dr. Shiro Ishii fled for the hills, leaving behind him a trail of senseless murder and destruction. Though exact numbers will never be known, estimates put the death toll of Unit 731 alone between 3,000 and 12,000. Still more were killed in Ishii's other biowarfare facilities and in the deadly epidemics launched by Ishii's team, which claimed anywhere from 200,000 to 580,000 lives. It's unsurprising that Ishii ran, given his knowing participation and facilitation of various war crimes. He devoted his life to the creation of lethal weapons, and now he faced the task of owning up to it. It didn't help that American military colonels from Camp Dietrich, the US biowarfare unit, were eager 
for the facts. The same month that the war ended, Lieutenant Colonel Murray Sanders flew to Japan to interrogate those who had led the research conducted in Unit 731. By this point, the horrors of what had occurred there were only vaguely grasped. During a nine-week investigation, however, Sanders never interfaced with Ishii. That's because, like a Houdini escape artist, Ishii faked his own death. Allegedly, a funeral was held for him in his home prefecture of Chiba on November 10, 1945, just two months after World War II ended. But the US forces suspected Ishii was merely a man on the run from consequence. They demanded that the Japanese hand him over to investigators and sent another colonel to conduct further research. Once again, the Japanese were stiff-lipped and failed to hand over Ishii. Still, enough intelligence was discovered that in 1946, Ishii was accused of injecting plagues into live subjects. This was only one of the many unthinkable acts he performed on prisoners in his biowarfare units. On May 3, 1946, the Tokyo trials began, seeking to convict Japan's war criminals. Despite the accusations against him, Ishii was never mentioned. As it turns out, US operatives had been able to track down Shiro Ishii in early 1946, after he'd heard rumblings that the US might be willing to offer immunity to the scientists of Unit 731. After all the evils he'd committed, he wanted to ensure he was free from penalty. There was widespread debate within high-ranking US officials surrounding whether he'd be granted personal immunity. They had reason to believe the doctor had harmed and killed thousands of people. However, immunity was the only stipulation under which the US could effectively obtain the data amassed during the series of unethical experiments conducted between 1931 and 1945. So ultimately, they opted to collect the intelligence and let Ishii walk free. It was a devastating blow to the people of both China and Russia who had suffered at the hands of Ishii's evils. The human experiments conducted before and during the Second World War will never be excusable. Nevertheless, the information gathered by US intelligence was somewhat morbidly deemed to be absolutely invaluable. Dr. Edwin Hill, the chief of Camp Dietrich, the US biological weapons base at the time, remarked that the findings could not be obtained in the United States because of the scruples attached to human experimentation. Indeed, for all the suffering and death it inflicted, Unit 731 produced life-saving vaccines, methods for treating frostbite and dysentery, water purification practices, and innovations that have reduced wartime casualties. All that has come at a hefty price, however. America all but silenced the historical record-keeping of the unthinkable acts conducted in Harbin, Bayin He, 
and Ping Fang between 1931 and 1945. The planned epidemic outbreaks too went ignored beneath records of more heavily discussed Nazi concentration camps. Not many are familiar with the names of the 5,000 Japanese war criminals who were convicted by the post-war tribunals, likely due to the deal the US made Japan's biowarfare research was hardly mentioned in the proceedings. In fact, many of the corrupt doctors of Unit 731 managed to secure high-level medical positions in Japanese society after the war. However, little is known about the final decade of Shiro Ishii's life. We do know he developed laryngeal cancer in his last years. The resulting condition was painful, and talking brought him great discomfort. Perhaps for all the times Ishii had once boasted and cajoled for the building of his biowarfare complex, life served its own poetic justice in taking his voice from him. Shiro Ishii died on October 9, 1959, at the age of 67. Shiro Ishii is no hero of history, though the scope of what he explored in his lifetime was no small feat. Although we're better equipped when it comes to handling pandemic illnesses because of him, it makes one shudder to think about how he acquired his knowledge. It's also a marvel to think that such awful torture could have been committed by medical professionals, as they're inherently so aware of the horrors of disease and human suffering. Some of the details of Ishii's experimentation are too appalling to even comprehend, and contemplating their significance in the field of healthcare and disease prevention creates a powerful cognitive dissonance. For this reason, it's important that the stories of Dr. Shiro Ishii's evils are recorded as accurately and specifically as those committed by the Nazi regime. His legacy is one of both medical advancement and cruel devastation. Heavy grief remains among the families of those lost in the awful prison experiments and plagues. For them, equity has been rather taciturn in its deliverance. It was only in the 1990s that academia began to discuss at length the horrors committed by the Guangdong army under Ishii's directives. In 1997, relatives of those who died from infectious microbes and human lab tests filed a lawsuit seeking reparations. While Japanese courts repeatedly rejected their appeals, efforts for justice continue. Further litigation hopes to address how much of the evils that occurred in Ishii's facilities can be presented in textbooks. Such censorship points to a bigger problem, as the wrongs of history are retold to shirk collective responsibility in the dark stain of human error. If we don't remember, those with no regard for human life may rise to power again. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much, Alistair. 
For more information on Shiro Ishii, amongst the many sources we used, we found Daniel Barenblatt's book, A Plague Upon Humanity, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 